This season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. You will have seen those iconic yellow boxes in just about anybody who's anybody's kitchen. This autumn, they're running an amazing giveaway to help you fall in love with cooking. In order to be in with a chance to win an incredible cookware bundle consisting of a set of kitchen knives, apron, oven gloves, and a signed Tom Carriage hand and flowers cookbook, they want to hear about your favorite cozy autumn dish. It's very simple to enter. All you have to do is follow Cooks Matches on Instagram, like the post on their page, which tells you about the giveaway, and then simply leave a comment with your favorite autumn meal. I mean, to be honest, that's going to be the hardest bit, narrowing down your favorite dish to just one, but you can do it. The competition runs until the 28th of October, so get entering. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk. Good luck to everyone, and thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, hello, how are you all? I hope you're all having a lovely week. It feels like the days are going very fast at the moment and we are well and truly speeding into autumn. The rain is falling as I speak, but who knows, maybe it will be another heat wave by the time this comes out. (laughs) Sorry for anyone listening not in the UK. Boring weather chat is a speciality. (laughs) And actually, I've just found out that we have listeners in over 180 countries, which has kind of blown my mind and means... I should probably limit my weather conversations. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope very much that you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Ben Liebus. Ben is the founder of the online cooking and content platform Mob Kitchen, whose mission it is to help students and young professionals prepare restaurant quality meals on a budget. Through everything from recipe videos to cook-alongs and competitions, Mob encourages a laid-back and get-stuck-in attitude in the kitchen. After noticing that none of his student friends were cooking, upon graduating from university with no background in food, Ben, armed with nothing but a kitchen, a camera and some recipe ideas, started creating overhead videos that people could actually cook. And ever since then, the company has earned a loyal and ever-growing following of well over a million fans, The Mob. With four Amazon best-selling cookbooks under their belt, Mob Kitchen have just released a new cookbook called Comfort Mob. One online publication I came across described Ben's style as a mashup of Hugh Grant's public schoolboy charm and Jamie Oliver's zeal and relish for food. Welcome, Ben. What do you make of that description? You being a cross between Hugh Grant and Jamie Oliver. I mean, you've got to be happy with that. I'll take it. (laughs) And how does the idea of going to a desert island make you feel? Are you good in your own company or would you be busy building fires to flag down the first passing boat you saw? I'd be busy building fires. Yeah. yeah, The idea of spending too much time on my own slightly terrifies me. So. (laughs) 
Growing up, your father owned an Italian restaurant in Oxford for 15 years. So I'm assuming there were lots of delicious dishes in your childhood. Let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Absolutely. So although my dad did run an Italian restaurant, he wasn't the chef at the restaurant. And my dad, he was the, you know, the, the business behind it. And so he has never really been a foodie in the real sense. His idea of good food and good cooking is simple dishes, dishes that you don't have to spend, you know, a really long time slaving away at in the kitchen. And so where his talent does lie in the kitchen is being able to rustle something up from nothing. And so I've never seen a person be able to create more delicious things out of a few ingredients lying around in a larder than my dad's um, or in the store cupboard. So yeah, the dish that reminds me of growing up the most and that he used to cook for me and my brothers uh, would be the spaghetti puttanesca that he did for us. So in my opinion, it's like the ultimate store cupboard dish. All you use is you finely slice two or three cloves of garlic. You then take a tin of anchovies, slice up five or six anchovies, uh, whack it into a frying pan with a little bit of olive oil, oil from the anchovy tin, uh, which is a bit more flavored. Simmer it down until the anchovies are broken up and the garlic is nice and kind of translucent, not browning. And then you add in two tins of tomatoes, simmer it down, add in some capers, again, store covered ingredient, anchovies, maybe a couple more anchovies, store covered ingredient and some olives. And just bubble it down to leave a nice thick sauce, toss through some pasta, add in some chopped parsley. It's a beautiful dish and it's so affordable and easy to do, done in 15 minutes. And he cooked it for me and my two brothers every weekend, basically, when we were growing up. So... I like the amount of anchovies you've got. In yeah, there. lots of anchovies. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of that's like the ultimate mob recipe. Yeah, I mean, I'd spoken about it a lot on the platform and it's uh, now in the latest cookbook, Comfort Mob, labeled as Dad's Putinesca. Um, so he's pretty happy about that. But no, it definitely kind of contains the, you know, the key principles of mob of just kind of, you know, really good, affordable, accessible cooking. So... This isn't a dish, but I did come across one of your earliest food memories that had something to do with being naked and covered in avocados. <laughs> God, I can't remember saying that to anyone. Um, yeah, I, well, always had a fascination with food and always had a fascination when I was younger, at least, of being naked. So I think up until the age of four, apparently, I was constantly getting naked at every opportunity. And at one time, my mum walked into the kitchen and found that I had smudged open an avocado and rubbed it all over my body. So <laughs> quite a terrifying sight, probably. Do you, do you want to move on from that? <laughs> <laughs> you went to Edinburgh to read history. And by all accounts, you were very entrepreneurial when you were there. I think you started an art gallery, put on art shows and competitions. What at that point did you think you were going to do when you graduated? Yeah, so at Edinburgh, I did set up a, uh, it was a, a pop-up gallery, basically, with one of my, one of my best friends called Milo. Uh, it was called Parade Presents. And the idea was that we would just find a new artist every few months and put on a show for them in London. Um, so we, we did our first show, which was actually uh, this guy called Jack Wilkinson, who's an, am an amazing artist. I think he works in a bar now, but um, it was really cool. We went around all the graduating art shows. We wrote down all the people that we liked. We then looked at their portfolios online. Jack was the guy that really standard, stood out to us. So we you know, approached him. We you know, hung his art in this really cool space in Brixton and sold some of his work. And it was a really amazing experience and felt great to be able to kind of put this very talented emerging artist on a pedestal. 
And then we, yeah, we did a couple more events like that. But by the end of it, I was sort of feeling I didn't really see my route into the art world as being very clear. I feel like it's such a difficult industry to get into if you don't have that much of a knowledge of art, which I don't really. So that kind of fell by the wayside. But I never really had any clear idea about what I wanted to do at university. And I saw all of my friends were getting internships and grad schemes and writing these huge amazing letters about what the next 10 years of their life would look like and I found it pretty terrifying because I really didn't have any clear idea I did a red history so like the most unvocational course ever and then yeah sort of towards the end of uni I began to have this idea about a, a food platform um, that was just for students and you know, it felt like a bit of a relief that I was able to really focus on that one thing. And, you know, that was going to be the, you know, the center of my attention um, and felt like there was less pressure on having to look at the grad schemes or the internships and I could really go for mob. Your dad obviously owned a restaurant and worked for himself. So had you grown up just kind of assuming that you would do something similar, like working for yourself? Potentially. I don't think I ever really thought about it like that. I think I just didn't, I had really no idea of any industry. No industry really leapt out at me. I never leapt out at me as think, you know, you're going to go for this, Ben, and you're going to 100% be a lawyer, or you're going to 100% go into the city, or you're going to be in property, or you're going to be in marketing or advertising. I never had that one thing that I identified as something that I wanted to go for. So it was almost through the lack of any clear direction there that I think that, you know, maybe there was a part of me that was like, maybe you're going to have to try and forge something for yourself. But actually my dad had a really stressful time running the restaurant. So when I told him, when I told him when I was graduating, I'm really thinking about doggedly pursuing this startup in food. He was like that. You couldn't have landed on a more stupid idea. And it was quite a struggle with dad for the first 12 to 15 months of mob. Cause I think it was really difficult for him to understand you know, what I was going for. But yeah. Yeah, I actually wondered that. And obviously, we're going to talk about that a bit later on. But he was really nervous when you said that that's what you wanted to do. And I when I read that, I did think, was that based on his own experience? Because he knows how hard it is working for yourself. Definitely. He loves me and my two brothers. And, you know, has always been so selfless and has done everything for us and has been an amazing father. And I think that he... Yeah, I think it was really just born out of like a fear for our futures that he's just, you know, he's a very cautious and pragmatic man in general. And so I think that, yeah, the idea of something so unknown and kind of intangible as Mob was at the beginning really terrified him. But it was born out of love, I think, not anything, you know, nasty or malicious. Um, but even still, I moved back. I had moved back home with mum and dad and it definitely, you know, it got quite tense. Towards Maybe that was part of it, Ben. He was yeah. worried you were going to be living with him forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he wanted me to fly the nest for sure. Let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish you learned to cook. The first dish I learned to cook was, uh, again, from my dad, a very simple one. And this one actually appears in our first cookbook, but it is a ginger and soy baked salmon. And I could not recommend this dish more highly. All you do is preheat the oven to 180 degrees. You get out a roasting tin. We did it with salmon, but you could really do it with any fish. Cod would be beautiful. Any fish at all would be lovely. Um, and you just lay the fillets down in the roasting tray. You add in a splash of soy sauce, a splash of water, some slices of lime, some red chili, and some ginger. And then you just cover it with tin foil or baking paper and put it in the oven for 10 to 15 minutes. 
and it comes out and you've got this lovely steamed fish. You've got the juice, the, the, the kind of the juices from the fish come out and they run together with the water and the soy and the ginger to create this beautiful kind of jus that you put over the top, jus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a lovely dish served with a little salad or some rice. And it's, yeah, again, super quick and easy and definitely one of the dishes I make the most still today. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning, the sort of origin story of Mob Kitchen. You were at university and whilst you'd always loved cooking, you noticed that your friends weren't really that into cooking and it was because they'd never been taught. Would you describe that realisation as sort of like a light bulb moment for something that you could pursue or was it more of a slow burn than that? I think it was two things. It was it was that coupled with this big emergence of uh, food content that happened on Facebook, which was the social media platform we were all using most at the time. And the platform that was at the kind of the bastion of this food content movement was uh, BuzzFeed and their channel Tasty. And they pioneered this food content format, which is these overhead recipe videos where there's a camera positioned above the workstation. You see a pair of someone's hands making a dish from start to finish. And it's all sped up in a really kind of neat looking at it. And the video lasts about a minute. And it was super engaging. And I could see that all of you know my mates and the people in the library when I was writing my dissertation, they're all watching these videos. And it was really nice to see that you know, our generation were like getting into food content, which I don't think that was something that was happening in you know, my first couple of years at uni. And... The thing that I felt underwhelmed by, though, was that this all of this food content put out by BuzzFeed seemed to revolve around food porn and cheese pulls and deep fried brownies and all that crap. And it wasn't real food that people would actually cook. So the kind of idea that people were getting excited by this quick cooking content, coupled with an awareness that my mates weren't feeling that there was any cooking platform, real recipe platform or resource for them online. It was those two things together that felt like, yeah, it was when I realized that I thought there could be a cool space for a recipe platform that makes super engaging content. And it's all around recipes that you're actually going to cook. Yeah, that's such an interesting point about the actual recipes that they chose to showcase. Like there was such a disconnect between the people watch, like how many of those people watching would ever actually get into Absolutely. the kitchen. But they were getting billions of views. And I've still to this day never heard anyone say the sentence, I'm going to cook a tasty recipe for dinner or I'm going to cook a taste made recipe for dinner. And these are these huge food media platforms that bit, literally build themselves as like the food leaders amongst a certain generation and like the most viewed recipe, you know, video platform, but no one cooks their dishes. Yeah, it's very strange, actually, when you stop and think about that. I wonder if they care. I think probably they do. They're uh, almost like a con, like it almost doesn't matter that they're food they could be anything they're just yeah. an entertainment sure. platform so sure. possibly the fact that people aren't sitting at home making their recipes they don't mind it doesn't really they're... matter yeah. yeah there's a different you know just like some youtube content is amazingly engaging kind of food-based content but you're probably not going to go out and cook a dish that involves like 50 different ingredients yeah but it's you know? interesting nonetheless exactly yeah. it's interesting to watch but um but anyway, yes, that's why I felt there was a space. Definitely. And the initial concept was to feed four people for under £10. I think you called yourself the Y chef, the chef of Generation yes. Y. And you really took that concept seriously. It was sort of in its strictest form. It wasn't that thing where it was the price based on sort of the proportions of ingredients used. You actually meant that you could go to the shop with £10 and you'd be able to, you know, prepare this meal. Exactly. Yeah. And there were a lot of, but I mean, that was like the main thing. There were a lot of, you know, budget 
recipe platforms online and they say a dish is going to cost a quid or, you know, 50p or whatever. And actually, if you go out and buy all the ingredients for that dish, it's going to cost probably, you know, eight to 12 quids. And so it feels like a slight false promise, which I think ultimately means that, in, you know, the user's engagement with that platform will slightly drop off because they realize that, you know, the, what they're being told isn't exactly 100% true. And also just frustrating, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. If you're being, if you think that you're going to be getting something for cheap and you come back and you spend a lot of money in the supermarket, it's not the best feeling. Yeah. And also students often don't have that money to spend. So no, I think, you know, with the student loan, you there is definitely enough money to be able to like go out and buy ingredients for a nice meal. But I think that it is a bit of a turnoff when people th- see that they're being promised one thing and then they have to spend another thing and i think that that kind of disconnect results in you just ultimately turning away from that platform and you know not having as much kind of trust and faith in it yeah that's true it's all about building trust so upon graduating you decided to actually try to turn this idea into reality but i'm interested because obviously to me now it you know it sounds like a great idea because i can see how well you, you've done but what did everyone else around you say at the time because obviously food blogging you know it had been around for a long time but this was pre-instagram days what was the plan for actually turning this into a business i think i was very careful at the beginning to like differentiate mob we're not a food blogger and it was never about ben libus it was always like you know the aim was to create a media platform and a brand basically um so it felt that there was and i think people yeah my contemporaries were aware that i wasn't like just going in and trying to become like a food influencer uh whatever that is and so the i was pretty clear on the brand from the outset and what 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 i wanted to like make of it and create with it and the idea was really just to i mean the main aim at the start was just to do everything and anything we could to build out the audience um that would allow us to do you know heaps of other things you know if you build it they will come and once they do come then the revenue cycles begin being, you know, branded content and which is our principal revenue stream at the moment, about 85% of our revenue is through branded content and sponsorships. And so, yeah, just getting the platform to a point where that revenue stream was kind of activated and then we could use the money that came in from the revenue that we were getting from our partners and put it back into the new ventures that we wanted to look at. I can definitely see and understand the end of that process, but how do you go about wanting that and and making that a reality? Like there's such a chasm yeah, between the there beginning. There is a chasm and, every, and people often forget about that because you think, I know what I was doing for the first, you know, 12, 15, 18 months, which is like, you, you have to just give everything. And the reality is no one really gives a shit about a startup because the whole point of what you're doing in the startup is you're having to basically force your way into people's lives and into people's day-to-day behaviors, make someone care about something that they previously didn't know they needed or didn't think that was important. And you have to make them see that actually it is important and with my product or with my media platform or with my content, your life will be slightly enriched. And you just have to do everything you can in order to make that happen. Doggedly just pursue it with only one focus and one aim, which is to get that thing over the line and to make people start caring about it. It's really goddamn tough. And you've got to just, you've got to give everything. And I think people like forget about that a bit when it's then you, because it's like, it goes from a point of like no one cares and then everyone cares. And when everyone cares, it looks a bit more glitzy and a bit more glamorous. But people forget about that first 
you know, with Mob, it was 18 months where just no one really cared. You know, we had, a, you know, we were building a little following, but it was tiny, you know, 5,000 followers on Instagram, 20,000 followers on Facebook. It was like totally nothing really. And the emails, the number of emails that I'd sent to PR agencies and newspapers and brands and just no one cared. And you've just got, to, I guess you've just got to be super resilient and really feel very just confident in total belief about what your idea is and and develop a very thick skin yes exactly a very thick skin and don't kind of feel ashamed to constantly be reaching out and putting yourself on the line um you just got to do whatever it takes i always think as well it's very brave to build a business like this because it's there's no way to build it in private which sounds so silly but it's sort of it's very public so all of your friends or anyone who you've ever met can kind of see what you're doing whereas you know other friends go off to their law offices and they're just knuckling down at work and it's just yeah. a bit more private whereas i don't know there's sort of i guess being afraid to fail it's sort of out there for everyone but you just have to completely ignore that absolutely yeah it is very public mob especially i mean all you know whenever you start a business i think you well, you obviously want it to be public because yeah, you need yeah. people to but know also about like there's an, yeah but people you know your friends know about it and you know it feels like there's a lot on the line but also surrounding yourself and having like a really amazing support network of friends and family which is so important for me where i just you know i didn't feel i felt like they were really part of the process so i never had a feeling of like oh i'm worried i'm gonna look stupid or embarrassed in front of my mates which i think was really important being it for for me which allowed me to kind of like really just like doggedly publicly pursue it um, without so much of that fear creeping up. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Yes. Okay. So the best dish I have ever eaten, this is an incredibly difficult question to narrow down on, but I'm going to go for my girlfriend, Robin and I went to a, an island in the South of Italy, just off the South of Italy called Ischia and there is a there is a, an amazing very charming kind of it's a hotel but it's pretty basic and there's a kind of like a central kind of eating area and then there are these little it's it's on the cliff side and then there are these little kind of there are these rooms that are kind of situated around the cliff and it's it's amazing and very rustic and you get to the top of the cliff and you have to put your bags in this little carrier that gets like pulled down on a rope down to the bottom of the down to where all the rooms are and it's called hotel club scanella and it's run by this one guy who is also a fisherman and he goes out on his boat every day and he goes and catches fish and then he brings them back and he cooks them for the people that are staying at the hotel and the dish that i'm going to go for is my favorite dish i've ever eaten best if i've ever eaten was a, is a pasta dish he made but i'll also say another dish that was amazing but the pasta dish that he made um there are also these beautiful lemons uh, that grow around this gear and he makes a pasta con limone which is just um i just love that simple food that's really my favorite food in the world and it's just get a stainless steel pan on on the flames add in some really good quality extra virgin olive oil, two cloves of garlic, uh, finely sliced, and the zest of two, I mean, these lemons, you know, they're huge. They're like melons. They're so big and they're all knobbly, the skin. Yeah, like an Amalfi lemon. An Amalfi lemon, exactly. And they, 
take he he peeled it off and just whacked these like whole pieces of lemon that aren't sharp it's just like fragrant and sweet and put them in the olive oil and cook it on a really low heat gently and so the olive oil just kind of infuses with that lemon and the and the garlic and then he just tosses through some pasta with the pasta water season with salt add in a little squeeze of lemon juice and it was incredible and the other dish that he made was just one time he came back and he just caught he just caught a sea bass and he just literally brought it off his boat put it onto the counter in the restaurant area and just sliced this kind of sea bass carpaccio served with some fresh lemon and and chili and it was just beautiful how did you ever leave that place that's amazing (laughs) Uh, yeah, much fatter. Um, <laughs> but the, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's a really cool place to go. So after six months, you had recorded the first recipes in your parents' kitchen, but by that point you were out of content, you were living at home and you were still yet to make any money. At this point, I think it was when you started working for Deliveroo and you say that you would slip recipes into pizza boxes. You also started messaging people on Tinder, um, whoever you'd match with, asking them to follow your page. One article I found in the Daily Mail describes you as the dashing delivery rider becomes the thrifty home cook's unlikely hero. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that time. Cause that must have been, that must have been tough going. Quite funny, the, the funniest comment under that Daily Mail article was, that, and the most top light one was someone who wrote, dashing, question mark, he looks like an anemic Guy Fawkes, which always cracked me up. <laughs> you're very brave to look at the comments on the Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. that's the number one rule that you're never meant to do that. Yeah, so this was probably, I launched the brand October 2016, and then five months on, we had run out of the first batch of content that we'd filmed. I teamed up with uh, an old school friend, Rupert, who's a videographer, and he you know, we started working on weekends and films. He'd come up every weekend, would film seven or eight recipes and these really intense filming sessions. Uh, and then he'd go back down to his job in London and I'd spend the week editing the content and uploading it. And, you know, the platform was kind of growing semi-organically, but I mean, really slowly. I'm talking like, you know, a couple of hundred followers a week. And so I just had to think about other ideas to get the word out. So yes, I'm actually, I, I messaged all my Tinder matches, which <laughs> uh, is funny, but actually I, th- I still think it's quite a, a, quite a good move because the, the good thing about doing that is Tinder's one of the only places where you are able to directly send someone a message that they will you know, potentially see that someone having no social connection to you at all. And so what it allows you to do is speak to people who are in totally new social circles. And that's a really important thing at the beginning of starting a business, you know, any kind of like media business, which is really trying to get the word out beyond your friendship circles and get more and more people talking about it. So So do you actually think that the Tinder thing was one of the biggest things that you did to sort of move that needle? I think it was a combination of lots of things. I def- I really do think that, that that helped. Another thing was I would look at every new person that this was a big one. I'd look I'd look at every new person who joined the who started following the Facebook page. And anyone that I saw I didn't have any mutual friends with, I sent them a message and I said, I will pay you ten quid. Um you've just got to download this Google Chrome extension which allows you to invite all of your friends to like Mob Kitchen Facebook page with one click. And most people said yes. And so I probably did, you know, 30 different people at 10 quid, so 300 quid. And it, you know, allowed, meant 30 different people would invite their whole friendship group on Facebook wow. to like the page. That was a really good idea. Um, it's more difficult now because you can't do that on Instagram. So I felt, I feel like I definitely had a bit of luck with the social media platform that was 
prominent at the time that felt that there were slightly easier ways to hack growth on it. Yeah. But yeah. There's this amazing podcast, which I don't know if you listen to it, but I love it called How I Built This. And there's one question that everyone gets asked and it's how much of your success do you put down to talent and skill and how much do you attribute to timing and luck? And I wondered what your answer might be. Where does just like total determination come into that? Yeah, I think that's the talent and skill. That's a talent and skill. Like if that is a talent and skill, then I think that 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 is definitely my main skill, which would be just dogged determination. Was there anything that would have caused you to walk away? There was a big moment after four months when we'd expended our first batch of content. I'd gone for a meeting with someone in London, a, a guy that owns a uh, marketing company called Big... Uh, it's like a branding company called Big Fish. Oh, yeah. And they're pretty big. They do branding for like, you know, they do. I think they do branding for like Dorset cereals and one of the like fancy tea brands. And Mob wasn't generating any money. My parents were, were about to kick me out of the house and I needed to find something that would be you know a a shift in the direction and he potentially had a small studio space in his office that he said i could film in on saturdays uh this would allow me to potentially move to london and you know get out of home and i offered him 45 percent of the business just to let me do that I got this call from the woman who works for him and she was like, I'm unfortunately he's basically said no after waiting for like three weeks over Christmas. Why? Uh, What was there to lose for him in that? I think he just didn't really understand it, but it was devastating. I got the news and I, I was, I remember getting this voicemail and was like wailing in my car and it was dark outside and it was raining. And I literally listened to this voicemail in the car and was in hysterical tears and went inside and told my parents and, the next weekend, Rupert, the, the, the camera guy who, was, uh, who I was you know, really close friends with, came up. And I think that was a real moment of me thinking, like, this is really not going the way I thought it would at the beginning. I thought very arrogantly I'd have a million followers overnight that didn't happen. And I had the op- option to maybe go a bit more part-time on it and move down to London and get a job or to just throw everything I have into it. And so, I, and I chose the latter. So I think that... I, th- I definitely think that like determination, dogged determination is a very large chunk of why mob is where it is today. And maybe some luck based on the social media platform thing. I, I think it's it was more easy to kind of hack growth on Facebook than it is on Instagram. But now TikTok's here and TikTok is, I think, a really refreshing answer to instagram and that it democratizes content it means anyone can go viral based on the merit of that one video you don't need to be super famous and it kind of means that anyone based on the merit of their content can make something of themselves and create something so yeah i do have to say in that podcast there's always a mixture of the two elements but actually having read your story you you have been so determined i feel like you you did make this happen yeah it that, didn't, nothing landed in your lap no it did. we never had a viral moment for sure i think that that's actually been a good thing for our brand in the long run so it's, it's going to be five years uh of mob in about two weeks so we've never had this moment of being at zero followers and suddenly 400,000 followers. It's been, it has actually been steady throughout the five years. There's never been a big spike, but I think it's meant that we've kind of had this slow growth, but our audience have really grown with us and have a proper connection with our brand, not just getting very excited about something 
and then it, you know, in, inevitably dies away after a couple of months. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. Ben, what is your favorite sandwich? <laughs> I feel like this is a little bit of a boring answer, but I remember when I was eight or nine years old, I got this total obsession with a, with like a cheese plowman's and I just loved really nice white bread with butter really good Branson pickle or some kind of pickle or chutney uh, and just like thick slice, good mature cheddar. And I was obsessed with it. I remember I would, that we had a, there was a little kind of corner store in our village and I would walk there and get all of the ingredients and make sure I had it, you know, every other night of the week um, <laughs> and had this real fixation on it. So I really like simple food and simple dishes. And I think, you know, the creaminess of a cheddar mixed with a lovely kind of sweet, but maybe slightly sharp pickle in a soft kind of white bread feels like the ultimate sandwich to me. So that's still your go-to? That would still be my go-to, yeah. You now have this huge audience and the sky's the limit in terms of where you can go from here. I know you experienced huge growth over lockdown. How many employees has Mob got now? Uh, so we've just hired our, just hired our 25th full-time employee. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And what you're doing now, is this literally the dream that you thought up and sort of started working on back in 2016? Or is it, is it bigger than you imagined? Has it sort of taken different twists and turns? I think size, I'm not so sure about it. Maybe I didn't have such a clear idea on that. I think that when I was filming the recipes of Rupert after the first four months, and I was thinking, where could Mob where could Mob be in five years? The idea of, which is what we have now, and I feel so grateful, but the idea of being in a huge studio space in Hoxton with 25 employees with an average age of 26 who are, you know, a mixture of amazing creatives and chefs and just really brilliant, driven, young, hungry, talented people. And we're all in this space together, just making really the whole purpose of what we do is to make, you know, engaging food content for our audience. And yeah, I mean, it's like, a, it's a dream come true. It's like, it's heaven. I love it. You go into the studio every day. There are new ideas or new things being cooked up. There's new business opportunities, products or content series ideas. It's just, yeah, it's epic. Tell us what a day in the life of a founder of an online cooking platform looks like. God, wake up, spend... 30 minutes to an hour dealing with things on Slack, which is our kind of like internal Teams messaging software. Um, then go through emails, get to the studio. I don't know. Plan. Are, you, are you cooking every day? No, no, no. Uh, I don't really cook at all anymore. Uh, so we have three full-time chefs, uh, Sophie, Jordan and Seema, who are all brilliantly talented, much more talented than I am. My cooking inspiration really dried up after three years of having to think of three new recipes a week. I was done. So no, we've got this brilliant food team and, you know, we, there are meetings, you know, meetings of different departments throughout the week, but we have our food team meeting where we sit down and we spend an hour talking about dishes that we're thinking about and, you know, new content ideas, maybe a mini series of soups or a mini series of pies. And they then go away and think about ideas and come back and we talk about them and yeah, talking about new ventures and whether that's products or apps or updates to the website or new books. It's quick growth at the moment. We were three people. We were how we were we were eight people in, in on January the first um, of this year. Of this year, so we've trebled in size in nine months. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
So with that comes a lot of, I think a lot of my day at the moment is quite reactive as opposed to proactive. So I spend most of my day reacting to things that are happening, which is, I think that's just natural in like this stage of growth of a business. You're putting out fires. Yeah, putting out <laughs> fires. Right. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. The dish I eat the most often, this is the dish I cook the most. I will say I am guilty of not cooking as much as I probably should. Luckily, my girlfriend cooks a fair amount. But after cooking so much for three years, I did that kind of like weeknight cooking. I slightly fell out of in love with, out of love with. Um, but one dish I love is this really simple bean and veg stew so it's just it kind of looks a bit like a minestrone um but it's onion and garlic sauteed in the pan and then you add in peppers carrots celery make sure that they're kind of nice and soft and then you add in two tins of drained beans they can be cannellini beans they can be butter beans they can be chickpeas and then add in one tin of tomatoes, mix everything together. And it's just this really warming kind of like hearty veg soup slash stew. Um, and then once the beans are nice and soft, you add in, you can add in some chard or kale or cavalanero for a bit of green and then finish it with some basil, lemon zest, lemon juice, a bit of parsley, season it, maybe chuck in a veg stock cube uh, at the beginning to kind of like intensify the flavor. But it's really, really nice and nourishing and warming. And we make that a lot. And you can kind of batch cook it at the start of the week as well and keep some in the fridge um, and have it throughout the week. So oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be giving that a go. That sounds really good. So your latest cookbook, Comfort Mob, has just come out and it's got high praise from the likes of Yotam Ottolenghi, who says that this book shows food doing what food does best, nurture, reassure, sustain and delight. That's high praise. Very high praise from Yotam. <laughs> yeah, it was really uh, amazing when I messaged him on Instagram and he came back and he said he'd love to read the book and uh, or preview it and he potentially offer a quote. And so, yeah, it was very flattering that he he wrote that about mob i mean he's you know incredible and an icon so yeah you must be in a sort of relatively unique position with this enormous following and all the recipes you put out there you must be able to see what the foods are that people really respond to the most and sort of like to cook and and eat the most yeah definitely i mean we've li we've just hired a full-time insights manager uh from i believe she was at Kantar, um but yeah, that's a big part of everything in Mob and especially with our with our with our clients, you know, they're very keen to understand what videos and what recipes are going to perform well with our audience. So we need to kind of go back to them with data and insights and understandings that we've gleaned, you know, around what the mob want to see. So there are the really obvious ones like pasta dishes always perform very well and um Noki performs very well. Halloumi performs very well. And then there are more seasonal ones. Like at the moment, we're seeing a massive spike in soup recipes. Um, and any soup dish that we put out does incredibly well and performs strongly. So literally two days ago, I sit down with the food team and we look at those insights and we think, okay, well, let's get a soup series out. So the food team go away. They come up with 10 soup ideas. We pick six, they develop them, test them, and then we film them. So, um, so yeah, it's a big part of what we do and definitely informs the content we put out. Yeah. And in every book, there's a runaway recipe. Do you know what that one is from the latest book? Like, do you know before it goes to print what that might be? And have you sort of been right in the past with your bestsellers? 
we post a lot of the content on our socials in promotions. So you can, you can often see, you know, the ones that are performing really strongly are going to be the ones that people are going to get behind. Uh, the cookie dough pie, which is a pie base topped with Nutella and then homemade cookie dough. It's about as indulgent as it gets. Served with vanilla ice cream. That one seems to be being recreated a lot by the people who've got the book. 11,000 people have now ordered it, which is pretty epic. Wow. Um, yeah. So there's a big comfort mob out there and they're all, um, yeah, the cookie dough pie seems to be a frequent one that's uh, being done. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> so the sixth desert island dish is your go-to dinner party dish, which I appreciate people haven't really been throwing dinner parties, but if you were yes. to have people around, what would you make them? So this is actually an idea stolen from my best friend called Misha. And so he originally cooked me this dish and I now cook it whenever I have people over. It's a little bit more on the expensive side, but you know, if it's not that frequent, it's a nice thing to kind of be able to save up for. And it is a salt baked sea bass. So you go to the butcher, you go to the butcher, you go to the fishmonger, you buy a sea bass, and then you just buy a shed load of quite cheap salt, table salt, and you fill a tray you lay the bottom of the tray with salt. You then lay the sea bass on top of it and you stuff it with thyme and lemon. And then you cover it with salt and you just whack it in the oven and you cook it for, cook it 180 degrees for 30, 40 minutes. And it traps all of the, nothing gets out. So the, the salt baking something is a pretty cool thing. So it means that it comes out and it's just unbelievably tender and juicy and delicious um because none of the steam can escape and you just you then crack the salt open which is pretty cool to do in front of the people that have come over <laughs> um and you just slice up the fillets of the sea bass and you serve it with some garlicky cavolo nero and then some roast potatoes that he does with a couple of tomatoes put in there um, and then you do it with just tomatoes and new potatoes and garlic and then when you stir everything together the tomatoes kind of break down and they're all jammy and delicious and it's so good what so he roasts the tomatoes in with the roast potatoes he roasts yeah so in the dish it's just like new potatoes it's genius actually it's new potatoes a small handful of cherry tomatoes and garlic salt and pepper and when you roast it the tomatoes kind of break down and then when you kind of toss everything together it kind of coats everything in this like jammy tomato-ness and then the new potatoes are kind of golden and squidgy and then there's the roast garlic that's in there and it's amazing that sounds really good yeah it's a great way to do <laughs> potatoes would you serve a pudding would I serve a pudding? Uh, I'm awful at making puddings, but I think if I were to serve a pudding, I'd probably... Jordan, our, one of our chefs at Mob, just made the best tiramisu I've ever eaten in my life. Um, and I've, I'm going to make sure that I learn that recipe because I think tiramisu for me is an unbeatable pudding. So on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? God, my most treasured cookbook. I don't really use cookbooks that much to cook, ironically, seeing as we put so many out. Um, but I would say... Do you have a big collection? Yeah, I've, I've got a good collection. I think when I was growing up, the chef that I... And he actually describes himself as a cook, not a chef, uh, that I, you know, worshipped the most was Nigel Slater. I just love his approach to cooking. It's, he, he kind of has this idea of it not really being like a set recipe. It's just things that he's got in his fridge and you know lots of the ingredients are always interchangeable um i can't identify one of his books by the title but anything by nigel slater i think he's a wonderful writer and yeah 
King Nigel. King Nigel. <laughs> We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I'm allowed courses. Okay, I would start with the insalata caprese. So uh, just really good buffalo mozzarella sliced up with some really fresh in-season tomatoes. Dress it with just salt, pepper, very good quality olive oil, and just tear some basil over the top. Uh, maybe like a little bit of fresh chili over the top as well. I would then have as my main a... I mean, any of the dishes that I've mentioned here, I think I would find very comforting. Um, but a dish that I love to make a lot is aglio e olio, which is just, um, yeah, garlic, parsley, lemon juice and chili flakes with pasta. And again, lots of good olive oil. Love olive oil. And pudding. I don't have that big a sweet tooth, so maybe I would just go for... Do you know Tony's Chocolate Only? Yes. I would yes. maybe just go for a block of that. So good. <laughs> the salted caramel one is... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Some great chocolate to finish it all off and a coffee and then pack me off. Amazing. Ben, thank you so much. Those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that if you enjoyed today's episode, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and even subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And it really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes, and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to our sponsor, Cook's Matches, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.